Hello and welcome to episode 806 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I'm Ben Lindbergh of 538, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hi. Hi. So there there are days that I question what we do here. There are days when I don't feel like talking about baseball in the middle of January. There are days when I think about how this isn't the greatest money-making venture of all time. But then there are days when (laughs) when I get some validation, when it all seems clear that we are onto something good here. Yesterday was one of those days because I was followed on Twitter by Smash Mouth. And this is because this is because Smash Mouth is uh, is is on a baseball campaign, right? Yeah, Smash Mouth wants to keep Tim Lincecum in San Francisco, and you're the guy to do it. <laughs> so they didn't follow you. They know the difference. They didn't just lump us together as two people who do a podcast occasionally about Smash Mouth. They seem to know that I'm the one who's really in their corner oh. for things that they did 17 years ago. Okay. <laughs> Here's the dirty secret. I don't follow Smash Mouth on Twitter. Uh, well, sure. Why would you? You like their music, <laughs> not their tweets. Yeah, right. They are artists, but not in every medium. Right. Yeah. Okay. All right. If, uh, they, started, if they started tweeting in song, you would follow them. Yeah. Well, they did tweet their cover of Under Pressure. So I guess I, I might have missed out on that if I hadn't seen it elsewhere on the internet. So maybe I should follow them just in case there are some... Twitter only Smash Mouth tracks. Who else did they follow on the baseball side? I think they followed Grant. Uh huh. That makes sense. Good company. Uh huh. I don't know who else. Okay. <laughs> Good job, Ben. <laughs> See if you can get a blurb from him on on our book cover. On our book, yeah. Huh. Smash Mouth. The only rules it has to work is the Astro Lounge of books by two authors about running independent league baseball teams. Uh huh. Okay. Yeah, these guys are walking on the fun. <laughs> they did a cookbook. So they're authors. They're published authors. All right. I have a topic, but before we get to that, a couple things. So there's been some news about a Salvador Perez extension. We got an e- email about it from a listener named Mike, but it was something I was wondering about too, that the Royals and Perez are talking about renegotiating his deal. He has had one of the team-friendliest deals, and he is signed for a few more years, or at least their team options for a few more years, and they are evidently getting close to reworking this somehow. And so he's making $2 million this year, and then there are team options for the following three years at $3.75, 5000000 and $6 million. So that carries him through his age 29 season. If you were the Royals, what would you do with Perez? Would you want to extend Perez? Because since he has signed that deal, I would say he has maybe become a, a worse bet long-term. Or When he signed that deal, he was in his early 20s. He was a well-above-average hitter, just not even just for a catcher, for anyone. 
and he had a great defensive reputation. And since then, he has declined pretty significantly as a hitter, which has coincided with his being used pretty... Would you say he's been ridden hard and put away wet? Has he been put away wet? Uh, well, I mean, certainly. If if you believe that there's a cumulative fatigue effect on catchers, uh, yeah. I, I mean, there there might not be... Like, how, how old is he right now? He is 25. He turns 26 in May. And he's probably, I mean, he didn't, he, he started early. He didn't start obscenely early, so he might not. But catchers usually start a little later. He made his debut at 21, and he caught 150 games plus two deep postseason runs. It wouldn't surprise me if you told me that he's on pace or, you know, that he had a shot to say start the most games of any catcher or catch the most innings of any catcher through, you know, age 30 or whatever the case may be. I don't mm-hmm. know who his competition would be for that. But, you know, he's definitely on the high end. He's caught an obscene number of innings. Obscene. Yeah. I, I use the word obscene in a value, in a, in a neutral way, just to mm-hmm. say that it's a lot uh, as when you consider the postseason. And if there was a cumulative fatigue effect, uh, then sure. The, the, so the question is figuring out how much that, how much the career innings uh, that you've caught matters for your rate of decline after a certain age. And also whether there's potentially... Because uh, with a pitcher, it's not just throwing innings, but it's throwing innings tired. And so you could maybe, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be a huge surprise if someone came out and showed that, you know, it's not just throwing 230 innings in a season, but if the last, you know, th- the, the innings in October are maybe more damaging to your health outlook because you're throwing them while sort of tired uh, mm-hmm. at the end of a long season. If there was that same sort of thing, then maybe uh, Sal Perez's, uh, you know, last, uh, you know, couple hundred innings of each year or even more worrisome. So uh, I don't know the answer to that, but yeah, it's there. I mean, it, as if the ridden hard and put away wet uh, applies to catchers, then it's definitely there for him more than probably almost anybody since Pudge. Yeah. Who, who, and remember, Pudge was out of the game by like 28, right? Yeah, well, <laughs> right. <laughs> and I wouldn't say his defensive reputation has suffered. He won a gold glove again this year, but... His defensive evaluations, at least the statistics, have hurt him somewhat since the catcher framing stuff caught on because that is a weakness for him defensively. So what I'm saying is it would maybe not be such a bad thing to just have him through age 29 and then not have him anymore, or at least that I wouldn't necessarily be highly motivated to want to extend him beyond that. I guess the argument for doing it is that he's a team leader and you want him happy and you don't want him sulking about the bad deal he signed and his agent advised him to sign. But on the other hand, you might not want to want to commit to 30-something Sal, right? I mean, or at least you might want to wait a while to see if that is something you want to commit to. Yeah. I'm not sure I would be... Uh, it wouldn't be near the top of my list. Oh, I, I definitely wouldn't be. I mean, it would have to be. So the thing is, it would have to be at a heavy discount because, first of all, it's four years away. Second yeah. of all, it's the Royals. And so the Royals aren't a team that presumably would be the leader to re-sign him if he hit free agency. So they're not going to want to pay anywhere close to full market prices for what yeah. he thinks he is. Yeah, uh, the, the listener who emailed us, Mike, was wondering whether he might actually cost himself money long term if he were to renegotiate now and extend now. 
Well, uh, if his career went well, then he certainly would, that mm-hmm. for, as with most extensions. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it a good uh, – so? but is, is it the wrong time for him to even negotiate? Is it a <clears throat> particularly bad time for him to be thinking about extending? I mean, it, it seems like letting a team like the Royals be the only bidder on you is always going to be kind of a bad economic decision for you. I mean, if you're only going to have one bidder – You'd really like that one bidder to be a team that you can push up somehow. Like if the one bidder is the Yankees or the Dodgers, you might do okay. If the one bidder is, you know, the Rays or the Royals, well, you're probably already acknowledging that you're not going to be getting, uh, it's not going to be a a real intense negotiation. They're going to have pretty strict limits on what they're going to be able to spend. And Although they did just give Ian Kennedy $70 million. Well... (laughs) <laughs> now that's that's their that was their Sal Perez fund. Uh-huh. That that's probably the last money they'll spend for a few years. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I mean it's not an ideal situation for him to get like he's not going to get a Buster Posey extension out of this, I wouldn't think. But to the question of whether the Royals should do something to make him happy uh, right now, you have four years of him at a great price and you're going to be happy to have him so how many wins are there in soft benefits to him feeling like he's a part of your team for beyond four years is a very good question i mean i would think that i could see giving him a two-year extension now and taking him to age 31 and maybe giving him you know pretty good price like i could see giving i could see extending like okay so right now he's got four years and 17 million left and that looks like if, if you're laying in bed at night or you're you know jogging on the treadmill and you just keep thinking four years and 17 million, I'm an all-star for goodness sake, uh, mm-hmm. then I could see that being frustrating. He's a three-time all-star for goodness sake because f- four and 17. Now, and so I don't know how much the human brain it gets fooled by simply turning that four and 17 into like, you know, six and 51. If it were six and 51, well, now the four and 17 is gone. I don't know if he'd still be thinking, I can't believe I'm only making $3 million this year, or if now he's thinking, I'm a $50 million player. That's pretty good. I could see going and giving him two extra years at $16 million each on the end of this uh-huh. and not feeling too bad about it. But then he doesn't get to hit free agency until he's 32 as a catcher who's been ridden hard. And that <laughs> seems like it costs him um, his his one bit. Like You could very easily see him not being a, an enticing free agent at all by 31, mm-hmm. 32. Whereas twenty nine, huge guy too. If that factors into how you think catchers age, yeah. So. Five year run of OPS pluses since he came up one twenty eight to one fifteen to one hundred five to ninety one to eighty nine. Right, it's yeah, a, that's a slope down. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I you obviously you if you're the Royals, you don't want your catcher sulking. And you also don't want to establish a precedent either for your players or for the industry that a guy who gets signed to an extension that ends up looking favorable to the team can simply hold you hostage. And so you have to figure out a way to find the compromise. And it seems to me that the compromise is giving him, you know, at least one or two years of grown up wages at the end of this. But I'm mm-hmm. not totally sure that he would want those uh, if it pushes back his free agency. Maybe you give him. Maybe you bump him to two, maybe you give him two years and thirty two on the end of this with an opt out uh, before them, so he can hit free agency at twenty nine if he wants, mm-hmm. and then he's uh, happy to be there because now six and fifty one looks like a real player, and uh, he's not 
shredding the, that he's giving away his one bite at the apple. Mm-hmm. I think maybe that's the compromise. Yeah. You okay. should get Smash Mouth to lobby for <laughs> two-year extension to Sal Perez right now with an opt-out before the two years kick in. Right. Yeah. When Smash Mouth tweets about baseball players, things happen. That's the best way to affect change. All right. By the way, by the way, Ben. Yeah. Home runs, 3, 11, 13, 17, 21. His home runs and his OPS plus are in perfect uh, disagreement with each other. Interesting. Very yeah. cool. I, I guess his uh, walk rate has his, gone the way of the OPS plus. His walk rate has gotten horrifying. He uh, yeah. his batting average. His of batting that's average a league wide uh, thing, but yeah. Well, the league didn't drop forty points. No. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So there you go. All right. So speaking of the league drop, one comment Rob Manfred made was about the strike zone, raising the bottom of the strike zone from the bottom of the kneecap to the top of the kneecap, which doesn't sound like a big change. Kneecaps aren't that big, but this is something we've talked about before. All the numbers have shown and Manfred confirms that the strike zone has been falling in accordance with the way that the league has instructed umpires to call pitches and that that seems to be responsible for the downturn in offense. And there was a rebound in offense in the second half of last season that I'm writing about, but it wasn't really strikeout related. People still struck out a lot, still tons of strikeouts. And just wanted to mention this because it seems like you would think that hitters would adjust to all of these things. People always talk about the pitcher batter balance of power and it's cat and mouse and everything. But lately it just seems to be cat. It just seems to be pitchers doing things and batters not being able to respond to them. And you mentioned that in your article about the flames on the Chiron on baseball broadcasts. You looked at how hitters have done against fast fastballs over a period of several years and found that they haven't gotten better at that at all. And uh, there was an article at Fangrass by August Fagerstrom about Francisco Liriano and how he throws fewer pitches in the strike zone every year. And like he throws pitches in the strike zone 36% of the time. So like almost two thirds of the time he's throwing a ball or what would be a ball if hitters didn't swing at it, but they do keep swinging at it. And that this is a league wide trend that uh, pitchers are throwing fewer pitches in the strike zone and hitters are still swinging at a higher percentage of pitches outside the strike zone. And there just doesn't seem to be any adjustment being made that hitters aren't doing better on fast pitches and they aren't learning to lay off pitches outside the strike zone. And all those things, it seems like probably go together because if pitches are faster, there's less time to react and maybe you aren't as good as telling at telling whether a pitch is going to be in the strike zone. And so you expand your zone as the actual zone has also expanded. And so it's just a bunch of things that are contributing to strikeouts and people don't like strikeouts, it seems like, for the most part. There is uh, one adjustment that hitters have made, have been able to make that has kept, I mean, you know, offense went up last year so. Mm-hmm. You know, it's obviously not impossible for hitters to adjust uh, completely, and they have adjusted as far as count leverage, and they're right. swinging much more aggressively at the first pitch, which has the benefit of you know hit, getting a lot more damage on pitches early in the count that are relatively easy to hit, and also taking away 
uh, in the sort of next step of the game theory, taking away the pitcher's free strike at the beginning. So there's that. But right, it it, it seems like to some degree the uh, hitters are making some adjustments that they need to make uh, in order to uh, you know to hit better, which is good. But pitchers are making adjustments that can't be adjusted against. If yeah. if a pitcher can throw 95 and you can't hit it and they can throw even more 95 as a group as like a as as like pitcher kind, if they can just keep throwing more 95 and hitters don't have a way of adjusting to that, there then it's potentially uh, creating this imbalance and you know the strike zone is the most obvious easiest way uh, to adjust that imbalance if you are the governing body. What was your you wanted to move the mound back? Is that I wrote an article about what that would look like just because people kept talking about moving the mound down and making the mound lower. And so I figured, what if you could just move the mound back six inches or a foot or something? And what so if? I, I think that would probably work. Is that what you found? Was that your finding? <laughs> yeah, that it would help. How much did you want to move it back? Like a foot? Yeah, I think it was a foot. Uh-huh. That'd be fun. I don't, I don't remember what the math was, but you could go look it up. I wrote about it at BP. I wonder, yeah, a foot wouldn't change the balance of the infield much. I was wondering what it would mean for pickoff throws, but I don't mm. think a foot would be that noticeable or six mm-hmm. inches would be that noticeable. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. <laughs> get, get Steve from Smash Mouth on it. <laughs> so, but I'm curious though. I, I intend to look into this uh, even further because to me, this was the, the Chiron thing started as just a, you know, fun, curious thing to look at. Uh, and I thought it was fun and I was curious, but then sort of stumbled on this thing that if true, I didn't look at it that deeply, but if true, seems really interesting to me. And so I do intend in the near future to go look even deeper at that. But does it surprise you that hitters after years of seeing 95 mile an hour pitches are not any better at hitting 95 mile an hour pitches? Don't you, wouldn't you expect that the greater exposure to these pitches uh, would lead to a collectively better uh, ability to hit them? Well, I I wouldn't really expect that reaction time would improve. And so... You wouldn't, huh? I See, I I would. And, um, and I would be wrong. It's interesting uh, to I would me expect that, that hitters would cheat more, maybe. I mean, like, you know, like, not that they would suddenly become super beings who can just react better, but that they would, you know, anticipate that they were going to see these faster pitches and they would start their swing earlier or something. And that that might make them better at hitting those fastballs, even if it might make them worse at hitting other things. Yeah. I would have expected reaction time to improve just because, I mean, obviously if I went out and tried to hit 85 right now, I would have no chance. But if I stayed in a batting cage and tried to hit 85, or maybe 95 in a batting cage, I'd have no chance. But if I stayed in the cage all afternoon and worked on it, you know, I would get better at it. And so I would have, obviously, I'm not a, a good comp because they've been facing, you know, relatively top velocity all their lives and they're, this, there's nothing new for them necessarily. Uh, so I would have expected to see some improvement. And uh, it's interesting to me to hypothesize that there's simply a, we talk about the the limit of how hard a human can throw without, destroying his arm and from the pitcher side but there's also perhaps a limit to what the human brain can process and that we might be reaching that point where hitters have bumped up against their ceiling and now it's a question of whether pitchers can continue to i mean if if in 20 years at you know if the trend continues 
I mean, as I as I showed in this Chiron piece, it what ninety five plus pitches are up like eighty percent over two thousand eight. I think something like that. I the, mm-hmm. the numbers are wrong, but something like that. If that trend continued, and you could imagine in twenty years where maybe there's you know an average pitch at ninety, an average fastball at ninety five, and there's no defense for it, the game might just stop. They might just quit playing. It's the only way this podcast will end. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so this can be brief, but what I wanted to bring up was an article in the San Francisco Chronicle about Billy Butler. And one of the things that Billy Butler mentioned was that the A's had bad clubhouse chemistry. And he said, to say we had a, bu- a bad clubhouse was accurate. You see, there's definitely people who are not here anymore that were part of the issue. I think whenever you have a season, you lose as many games as we do, as we did, that's always going to be a question. I don't think anybody's going to get along in a losing environment. Nobody wants to lose that much. So he said it was at least partially because they just had a bad season, but there were also evidently people or a person who was contributing to that and is no longer there. I don't know if he's talking about Brett Lorre or or someone else that the A's have moved this offseason, but... Anyway, I noticed this because two off-seasons ago, you wrote an article for ESPN the magazine and then another follow-up for BP about the A's and clubhouse chemistry and how they seemed to have a great clubhouse chemistry and you wondered why that was. And you kind of you recap, you, you tried to figure out whether it was intentional or accidental. I did. And yeah. you, you couldn't. I... <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> Did you at least like the writing? <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, right. It was trying to figure out kind of whether it was intentional or accidental from the front office's side and kind of whether it was a true talent, I guess, within the clubhouse, whether those guys actually had something that made them you know, good at this, whether that, whether that not those guys necessarily as individuals, although maybe the, the Ghani Jones factor and the Brandon Inge factor from the previous year, or maybe just the space, maybe there's just something about, you know, the organization, maybe there's something about the fact that they're the, the junkiest clubhouse in baseball, and that, you know, you're sort of forced by architecture and uh, finances to behave in a way that's a little bit more collective and communal uh, or whether uh, it's something about the way that they were winning or the way that they play, whether it's something about the fact that they were doing so many platoons or uh, whether in fact it was all imaginary and whether there was nothing particularly interesting about that clubhouse at all. And if I was just asking leading questions and if they were, if the right people were being quoted saying it, but in fact uh, to 20, you know, to 23 members of the clubhouse, this was nothing that they will remember and uh, so then to, to go back, if you'd asked me, my, I might have guessed that, in fact, this accidentally correlated or unintentionally correlated uh, to success uh, or not to, success, to the A's personnel strategies in performance. They had a lot of platoons. Almost, it seemed like almost everybody was platooning. They had a lot of guys who were uh, getting a chance that they hadn't got elsewhere. You had a lot of guys who were from different organizations. And so they had not come up as, as any kind of a click. Uh, there was not insiders and outsiders in that clubhouse. They were pretty much all outsiders, like a huge percentage of the team were guys who'd been 
picked up off waivers or gotten by trade because almost the entire team had been acquired uh, from from elsewhere at that point. And there was you could imagine that leading that making it harder for everybody to come together, or you could imagine that it would break down some of the hierarchies because you don't have guys who you know have been there and, and feel like it's their turf. You don't have guys who are making a lot of money. Oh, that was another thing because they can't spend money. There were essentially no rich guys in the clubhouse. So you didn't have a lot of the sort of traditional places you might expect a hierarchy to develop. So without, mm-hmm. without trying to do this, uh, without engineering it in any particular way, it can, was a convenient byproduct of their game, you know, their, their strategic, strategic strategies. So that would have been my, my, probably my guess at the time, if I'd been forced uh, mm-hmm. to explain. Yeah. So, so the A's front office people told you it wasn't intentional really that they were going after talent and they just happened to get some good guys and the players seemed to think there was some intention to it regardless of how it happened. That was 2013. A's had the best clubhouse. They were supposedly winning more because of the best clubhouse or, you know, whatever. Always hard to establish the cause and effect. But had a great clubhouse, 2015, bad clubhouse. Just two years later, lots of the same players still there. Yeah, according to, by the way, according to one guy. and right. who, And I think that the delightful twist here is that if you think about it, it seems like a pretty good chance that Billy Butler's the problem. And that, in fact, <laughs> what he sees, what see, he sees as bad clubhouse is that he had a lousy year. He was now the one rich guy in the clubhouse. He was also the underperforming guy in the clubhouse. He also, oh, an, another thing that I thought was was helpful to their chemistry was that you had so many guys playing different positions that you didn't have the infielders, the outfielders, the catchers, the starters, the relievers. You had catchers playing other positions. You had infielders playing outfield. You had outfielders playing infield. You even had Sean Doolittle, who uh, was you know a reliever who had been a position player. And you had starters relieving and relievers starting. And so you wouldn't necessarily have the five or six different groups. And so, but Billy Butler is you know clearly he's a DH. He doesn't fit into any of these. So. If there's anybody who would feel isolated in that clubhouse or who would feel stress or who would feel anxiety or aloneness, you could imagine it being Billy Butler. He's also, you know, the in a lot of ways, he's he he might be the guy who you well, I just said it, who would you might expect would feel the most lonely. So I have no idea if Billy Butler was a great guy in the clubhouse or not. Maybe he's mm-hmm. the jolliest man in the world, maybe he's the mayor, but probably like there's a you got to figure if you're playing the odds that there's a yeah there's a there's a fifty percent chance well there's probably an eighty percent chance that Butler is just responding to losing that mm-hmm. it looks worse when you're losing but uh, of the other twenty percent it seems like maybe you'd say it's a coin flip of whether he's responding to guys that were you know actually bad in the clubhouse and a fifty percent chance that he was the malingerer and of course it seemed wrong because it seemed like a bad scene to him because he was the unhappy one so yeah i felt like uh that was the the, the fun and subtle subtext of mm-hmm. his quotes yeah well so i bring it up because there's all this talk suddenly about the nationals being a toxic environment and bad clubhouse and players spurning them because of the clubhouse and there was a discussion on MLB Network the other day, Ken Rosenthal was uh, reporting some rumblings. He said, 
The other thing you hear rumbling about in the industry is that players don't want to go to Washington. They perceive that clubhouse to be a less than happy and harmonious place, and they feel that it's just not a great situation right now. And then he said, while the individuals can all be saying this is a specific reason in each case, when you add it all up, you start to wonder. And this is based on the fact that the Nationals have tried to sign a bunch of people or trade for people this offseason who ended up going elsewhere. They did get some players. They did sign Daniel Murphy, but they went after guys like Hayward and Zobrist and Cespedes and Upton and Darren O'Day and Mike Leake and tried to trade for Brandon Phillips, who didn't end up waiving his no-trade clause. And uh, when the Zobrist to the Cubs thing happened, James Wagner of the Washington Post said that the Nationals weren't really close to getting Zobris because, quote, he didn't feel as comfortable in the Nationals clubhouse. And so there is this perception that players are are avoiding the Nationals because of the clubhouse. And there was a lot of reporting about their clubhouse last year and, you know, just the, the choking, the Papelbon-Harper dispute, which everyone saw, and then all the stuff about Matt Williams and the team not being happy under Matt Williams. And so it just seems sort of surprising to me that if this, if this is true, that players would be putting such an emphasis on the Nationals clubhouse when it seems like we see teams go from good clubhouse to average clubhouse to bad clubhouse from one year to the next or one year to two years later. And I would say that, you know, like a, a year ago, maybe, or two years ago, the Nationals would have been seen as a very desirable location for for free agents to go. Certainly one of the best teams, and you could probably say they still are. And it seems like the things that caused last year's problems maybe have been resolved. I mean, Matt Williams is gone, and Dusty Baker was hired. And if anything, it seems like Baker was probably hired because he has a reputation for being someone players like and someone who can handle a, a clubhouse. And they traded Drew Storin, which maybe sort of helps resolve the Storin Papelbon tension, although the real source of that tension is still there. So, I mean, is it possible that like people don't like Jonathan Papelbon to such an extent that the Nationals are having their entire offseason derailed by by that, just by that reputation for a team having a bad clubhouse and and does that make any sense i mean if you were uh i mean we know that there are examples of teams that won despite having bad clubhouses or guys who didn't get along but you could still understand why someone wouldn't want to be a part of a clubhouse where people didn't get along even if the team was still winning it would be a less pleasant work environment but it just doesn't seem like there's that much consistency to this like if we if we could quantify this, if we could give each team a chemistry rating for each season, it seems like the year-to-year consistency of it would not be all that great because manager changes and front office changes and players change and the team goes from bad to good and good to bad. And it just doesn't seem like uh, the sort of thing that if I were a free agent and I were signing a long-term deal that I would give that much consideration to. Yeah, I mean, I hope that you're right. I would love, I would love for Papelbon to get blamed for bringing down an entire franchise simply by his <laughs> presence. Like that, not almost nothing would make me happier. I'm worried that that I'm worried that, in fact, what what we've seen, oh God, I I don't think this is true, but I mean, what we saw with players who 
didn't, you know, didn't like Bryce Harper before last year because they thought he was overrated, which is essentially, it seems like people resented him because he was young and hyped and also maybe kind of you know, showy and sometimes a, a jerk and uh, fiery. I'm, I'm worried that it's going to get blamed on him. Uh-huh. Yeah. And that, and it might be the case that there are players who don't want to play on a team where they know that it's Bryce Harper who's going to get so much attention that they're going to be sharing in a, a clubhouse where uh, half the clubhouse belongs to a guy that they have heard bad things about or for some reason have bad opinions about. And so that makes me a little nervous. I don't know if it ever mattered. I mean, to just to check that, you probably would want to see whether there was any indication. I don't know how you would find that, but any indication that this was ever an issue with Bonds uh, and the Giants clubhouses because, you know, nobody was nobody ever took up a larger share of a clubhouse, literally in his case, than Barry Bonds. And nobody was sort of more universally disliked, I think, than Barry Bonds in the game. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that was uh, something that was talked about, or I don't know if there's any evidence that it was an issue with Bonds. But if if it's Papelbon specifically, uh, I think that it, the best bet is that Papelbon probably won't be there for, for that long, maybe this mm-hmm. year. But if you're looking to sign a four-year deal, you can probably bank on a few non-Papelbon years. Yeah. And maybe they don't of- like I it's it's also who knows who they don't like maybe they don't like Jason Worth maybe they don't like J- Jason Worth I, I don't know <laughs> <laughs> there maybe, a- they, maybe they're worried they're going to trade for Billy Butler <laughs> yeah right well there was another weird thing that was brought up in that discussion where Harold Reynolds pointed out he called it the elephant in the room that so much of this team is represented by Scott Boris and it is a very high percentage. It's like nine players on the 25 man roster, basically. And a lot of the really good players. So it's Scherzer, Worth, Gio Gonzalez, Strasburg, Harper, Stephen Drew, Oliver Perez, Danny Espinosa, Anthony Rendon. All those guys are Boris guys. And so Ken Rosenthal responded, that's a possible factor. And I did hear that from one agent of another player this week, that one aspect of this that made him reluctant was the fact that it is Team Boris in the perception of many. Why? I know. <laughs> That's what I'm wondering. If you were, why would it worry you? If you were, if you were a player who wasn't represented by Boris, and or you were the agent of a player and you weren't Scott Boris, why would it worry you that there was such a heavy Boris client presence on this team? Would it be the perception that they're gonna like form a, a Boris block or something and like because they're such important people on this team and people that the Nationals would want to keep that they're going to have a bigger say or something like they're all going to vote as one or you're not going to you're not going to talk your way into a into a theory that makes sense here (laughs) you can talk for a long time and no none of them yeah and do players hate do players I can't imagine players hate Boris no, I, I, I mean there's a there's a relationship between Rizzo and Boris, right? I mean that's been written about just mm-hmm. because there's so maybe you get the sense that Boris clients get preference somehow, or you know they would get what they want, or you know, like if they like if a Boris client doesn't like how he's being used, then maybe you give in to that guy sooner because you don't want to annoy Boris and all the other Boris clients or something like. <laughs> Maybe it's, you know, like a clubhouse fault line like you wrote about in those chemistry articles, Boris and non-Boris. No, no. you're doing it again, Ben. (laughs) No, no matter how long you go, no. 
<laughs> I don't know. I'm sorry. I, I don't think that there's, I don't think that Boris clients have a secret shake. Yeah. It's, it's a weird thing. I don't know why that would be a factor that a free agent would take into consideration. Anyway, who wrote all I'm that? saying is who wrote that or who, who uh, said it? Ken Rosenthal. Huh. Uh, who is, you know, the best. Interesting. Yeah. Wait, and um, was he quoting I mean, he someone? says it's something he heard. Yeah. Yeah, it says he's something okay. he heard from another agent. So agent jealousy is the most yeah. likely motive I, here, right? I suppose. For it being said. Yeah, it's weird. Anyway, I guess what I'm saying is the Nationals right now have a perceived chemistry problem, but these things change very quickly and... It would not be at all surprising if three months from now we're reading about how, you know, Dusty Baker has brought everyone together and it's a new year and it's a new group and all the negative feelings from last season are gone and the Nationals are winning. And then it will seem silly that players were turning down the Nationals based on this, if in fact that's what happened. Okay, that's it for today. You can send us emails at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. And you can rate and review and subscribe to the show on iTunes. Support our sponsor, the Play Index. Go to baseballreference.com, use the coupon code BP, get the discounted price of $30 on one year subscription. We'll be back soon. It's all about-